Welcome to the Real Freedom Podcast. Today, I have a very special guest, Mr. Scott Apone. Scott comes from the beer industry. Now he's in tech sales with a startup. He's closed multiple seven-figure deals. And guys, I can't wait. We're going to hear everything about Scott's journey from the beer industry all the way into tech sales and how he became a master closer. Fantastic. Happy to be here. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah. Do you consider yourself a master closer? I wouldn't say that. I think it's an evolving process always. And I think there's always more to learn. Yeah. yeah. And you're a pretty humble guy. So I told Scott for the listeners that he's going to have to feel comfortable bragging about himself a little bit on the show. So hopefully we can bring that out. Scott, on this podcast, we always start off with your most beautiful failure. What was yours? Yeah, this question got me thinking a, a little bit. And, you know, I think for me, this was a little bit later in my beer career when I realized that I wanted to make a change into something, but really didn't know what. And I took a you know, job in a, in a field of beer sales that I was completely unfamiliar with and I had no real passion for. And I think, you know, it was that perfect storm of I was looking for something different, didn't know what I was looking for, but they offered me a bunch of money to do it. And, you know, I jumped at it and said, okay, let's give this a shot. And it was one of those things where, yes, I learned a lot. And I, I, you know, it was a great experience. I met a lot of cool people, but it wasn't one where I think that I would say that I was very successful at it. You know, the, the way you brought up a beautiful failure, it truly was because frankly, it was not something I was very successful at, but at the end of the day, it led me into and helped me uncover what I really wanted to do. Wow. Lots of stuff to unpack there. I love that. How does somebody that, if you can place yourself back into, maybe it was even pre-beer industry, what is that like when you're sitting there and you're thinking like, what am I going to, like, what am I passionate about? What do I want to do? What was your experience going through that? Yeah. I mean, that was, when I think about this and, and, when I think about, you know, what I went to school for, I went to, you know, a, a school, a small college in, in Boston, just outside of Boston. And, you know, I went into finance because my father was in finance. It sounded like a good, you know, background to have, but I was never, you know, a great student. That, that really wasn't where my passion was. You know, I started to think about all these different things and, you know, as life kind of evolves and you get brought into different things, I did get, you know, shuffled right into the beer industry just because I met somebody. And it was, we were out at a party and, you know, I was doing, I was in the direct mail industry when I first moved out to San Diego, which was quite an, an experience. I was cold calling, you know, two, 300 calls a day in a pretty interesting in industry. And, and then I met somebody and they were like, oh, well, you know, we're hiring for this position, you know, to be a promo manager. And I said, okay, you know, I'll go out for it. You know, I don't like, really like what I'm doing right now. And that kicked me off on a nine year career working in beer sales. And then obviously that helped evolve into the next thing. And I think it was just going through all the experiences of these different things and meeting different people and, and, you know, 
expanding my network to see what else was out there was ultimately what kind of helped me get into what I'm doing now, which is tech sales, but more specifically, it's helping organizations and, and companies build things and build things in many different ways, you know? So I got to think as a young single guy, getting into the alcohol industry initially can be pretty appealing. Sounds pretty fun. I'm, is it? It was a blast. Was it fun? It was an, it, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was an absolute blast. I loved it. And it hit right, you know, I, I just moved out to San Diego. I uh, came out here with three buddies, uh, a camper and a dog cross country. You know, it was an awesome opportunity to meet a ton of people, uh, get plugged into kind of an, an instant social scene. And, you know, beer industry is obviously a blast. It was great. And it was great for that nine years. I, I met so many amazing people who I'm still in contact with today. I got so many amazing experiences working for several of those different companies. And also at the same time, as I you know, got into my mid-30s, realizing, yeah, you know, this was fun, but I'm ready for something new. I'm ready for something different. And, you know, it was a great learning experience, though. So taking a step back, what compels somebody to get in a van with two dudes and a dog and just move completely <laughs> across the country? I mean, that is, you got to be brave to do that, right? Yeah, we had heard a lot of people talk about doing this and you know, I think I would attribute our comfortability with making this jump. We took a trip, a friend of our, a friend of ours who has a house out in Seal Beach invited us out for, you know, spring break week. And it was to stay at the house by the beach and just go experience California. And we did it and we were all hooked. We were like, this is the greatest place on the face of the planet. Like, let's figure something out. And so a few years went by, I traveled to Australia on study abroad with, with two of the guys. And I remember we were, we were sitting there and I was, I was helping a buddy open his restaurant in Waltham at the time. And we were all sitting around just chatting. And I think one of the guys was like, you know, I think we should move to a sunnier place. I think it was like a dead of winter or something like that in Boston. And it was basically just a, what if we just picked up, we sold everything and we find a way to get ourselves out there, you know, a you know, month or two road trip out there experience everything and see where it goes with the whole plan of being out here for maximum two years. And then we got out here, we had to live in a trailer park for a couple months because surprise, surprise, nobody wanted to rent to four guys with no place to live now, no jobs. So my father kindly co-signed a place for us finally. And that was it. I always used to tell my parents, yeah, I'll, I'll be back in a year or two. And, you know, finally they got the, the point after about five or 10 years that that was not happening. But yeah, that's kind of what it was. I traveled study abroad with these guys. And so we all were very, very close, met freshman year in college and very similar interests around travel and just life in, in general. And I think us being together is what gave us the confidence that we could make that happen. So it was really just like seeking a sense of adventure, it sounds like. Yeah, I would say that was a huge component of it. It was something totally different. Things were going great back in Boston, but we also figured we're 25 years old and none of us were tied down. We didn't have a mortgage or kids or anything like that. And it was that very perfect time to go do an adventure like this. Yeah, it's interesting. For those of you listening that know my story, I did the exact same thing from Colorado. And the funny thing about people that say they're going to San Diego for a couple of years is most of them never leave. <laughs> so there's a, reason, there's a reason why it's called the finest city in America. So I'm trying to, for the listeners to place ourselves 
I'm sure there's somebody out there listening that's like at this inflection point in their life where they're like, do I continue on with the status quo or do I take a big leap of faith and go try something? And I think your story especially really resonates where you took a big jump multiple times, first with this move to San Diego, just like throwing yourself into the unknown. And then in the beer industry, then transitioning to tech sales. I mean, that's quite a sales as sales, but that is quite the industry jump. How did that opportunity come about? Is this something you were actively looking for or what gave you the courage to jump into that? Yeah, I mean, it's funny where you relate the two. And I think thinking back on it, probably how successful we were making that jump from Boston to San Diego and realizing that we could do that probably gave me some of the confidence to be able to make a change like this because it wasn't something that I was necessarily looking for at the time. I was definitely knew that I wanted to get out of the beer industry and transition into something, but wasn't too sure what that was. And I think that for me, it was the realizing that, hey, listen, you can't be stuck doing something that you're not passionate about or you're not finding joy in because at the end of the day, that's just going to lead nowhere. And so I think for me, it was okay. This isn't working for me right now. You know, I think one of the things, just a small tangent is when I think about that role that I took that I wasn't very passionate about, I think one of the things that helped me realize was is I was more interested in the, the systems and the technology that could make me successful in that role that I was actually more passionate about than the actual job. And I spent a lot of time focused on those and realized that I need to figure out when I was able to implement some of those things and make things more efficient and better, it felt great. And I loved it. And so I started to think, okay, what type of an industry can I get in and, and start to get that feeling and get that ability to operate on those systems? And so over time, I had a couple of buddies who were in, worked for a, a VAR, a value-added reseller within the, the tech industry. And we'd all been friends hanging out for the past few years and I'd you know, heard their conversation conversations. And what ended up transpiring is that I'd been very successful in the beer in industry. We'd all been friends for a long time. A position became available at the local office out here. And I said, can I give it a shot? And a couple of my buddies came to me to support me and said, hey, listen, we've been looking to, to get out of that in industry. Why not come in and at least have an interview? And to their credit, they coached me up completely. And uh, it was a pretty scary experience. You know, I was in my mid-30s and making a jump like that into something I had no idea if I was going to be successful and whether or not I'd be able to, to make that jump was scary. And so having that network to help guide me through that process and, and to help me build my experience was phenomenal. Okay. So it wasn't something that you were actively seeking or was it just... At the time, I had left that or that beer company. I had left that job and I was looking around for something. And that's when we had the conversations about it. They let me know that there was an opening in the office. And then I got introduced to their hiring manager and had to go through the whole presentation. And it was something that I think they looked at me and saw my ability to be personable and my ability to connect with people and said, okay, there's something there and he's a smart guy. We can train him up. And they, they took a chance on me. And did that chance just looking back at your tenure in the beer industry, I mean, I assume that you were just always a driven individual and, and had a proven track record of sales or not really? Yeah, absolutely. That was something where I had always focused on what can I be doing? What else can I be doing in order to get to where we need to go, whether it be a particular goal or plan or whatever it happened to be. I was always asking for more and always wanting to see how I could make things better and more efficient within the process. Got it. And so then you left the beer industry on your own accord then? 
because you were just like, hey, I, I want something new. This isn't it. Yeah, well, I mean, to be quite frank with you, I actually got let go from that last beer job because we both kind of knew that this was not something that I was really fit for and it was not where my passion was. And it was something where they came to me and said, hey, listen, but let's make a change here. And I said, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Like, and that's what I needed in order to kind of get kicked forward into what do I really want to do here? Yeah, that's, I love that because in the moment that feels pretty crappy. The same exact oh, thing man. happened to me, actually. I got laid off from my first job out of college as an engineer. And I remember thinking, what in the heck am I going to do now? I was not prepared for, like, you don't, you can't mentally really prepare for that. And you feel kind of worthless in that moment. And if, especially if you don't have that next thing that you know yeah. that you're going to jump into, there's just that feeling of uncertainty and a lot of anxiety that comes with it. How long from the point of when you exited that in the beer industry to then getting this opportunity in tech sales? What period of time are we talking? I think it was only about two months. It was only about two months. And you're right, it did nothing can really prepare you for that, even though I knew this is 100% the best thing that it should happen. But that stuck with me for a while. That was something I absolutely needed to work through. And it took me, I would say, a couple of years to really have, be set at peace with it. But at the same time, it was the jump that I needed to really make a change and, and really embrace it. Yeah, I always wonder if I hadn't gotten let go of that engineering job, I don't think I would have had the confidence or courage or being situationally uncomfortable on my own accord to like go seek that out and actually go all in on it. We call that having the golden handcuffs when you're just comfortable with where you're at and you there's no reason to really go seek something that might be better until you're forced to because the yeah. it's the fear of the unknown. Okay, you're in this interview and you're like, what is that experience like with all you have no experience in tech sales? And the reason I'm asking a lot of these yeah. run up questions is there's a lot of people looking for work right now. We've got just with our own job postings, we've got thousands of applicants. It's insane, especially with what's happening in the economy right now and everything. There are a lot of people looking for jobs. And I know that there's a lot of people listening that are in that exact moment where they're like, they're in that just kind of dark place of what do I do next? Take me through what that interview is like and then getting the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say preparation was 100%. And for people looking to make that change, it's all about preparation. But if you're going into a field where you don't necessarily understand the subject matter or you're not necessarily comfortable with a lot of the concepts, then you have to prepare. And I think that's what will give you the comfortability to be yourself in interviews or situations like that is if you go in prepared, you at least have a basis, right? And then whatever took you there will take you the rest of the way through, whether it's your ability to connect with people or your ability to show empathy or what have you. But preparation is 100% the key. And like I said, I was very fortunate to have some great friends who helped me with that preparation and allowed me to better understand the concepts. Now, in the interview, did I realize a lot about what I was presenting? No, absolutely not. But because I at least got in prepared, I, I kind of had the talk track. And that allowed me to display the other soft skills that I believe in the end are what got me the job. I love that. Because you're not in that moment thinking about what I need to say. You've rehearsed it enough times and prepared the talk track that now you can go a layer deeper. Let me practice my tonality. Let me practice my soft skills, my mirroring, Absolutely. act inquisitive and curious. And you can focus on the little fine details that really separate yourself from somebody that's not prepared, where they're just thinking about the right words to say. 100%. There's so much more to it than just the subject matter. 
it's really whether or not you can connect with the person on the other side of the table. Love that. And did you have instant success then when you got that role in tech? No, no, absolutely not. Like I, I said, no, this, you know, yeah, it it's <laughs> no, I went through, through a lot of small failures, some big ones over there. It was one where, you know, you constantly had to be inquisitive because, you know, working for a VAR, a value added reseller, we sold everything. I sold software, I sold computers, I sold little dongles to, you know, fast food chains. And it was, you know, it was very difficult to really hone in or focus on one specific area because they give you a small patch of accounts and all you're trying to do is figure things out and figure out, you know, well, what is this licensing go to and, and then how does this translate to what their objectives are as an organization? And you're trying to pick things up. And listen, frankly, a lot of times you get the accounts that have passed over from, you know, five or 10 people and, and you know, the person seeing somebody new come through like a revolving door. And, you know, you have to figure out a way through that. You have to figure out a way to connect with them and say, listen, I'm not going anywhere. You know, here's what I'm here to do. Here's how I believe I can help. And, you know, make that connection to start to build that trust. So that has to be, for those of us that don't really know what a value-added reseller is, that sounds just like basically a, a random assortment of products. And then is it up to you to find the use case and the market fit? Or how, if you've got so many different things to choose from, how are you able to match like the right product and, and then map, like prepare the right talk track and, and the value proposition to them? Yeah, I mean, I think a big part of that is it's knowing your, your customer. It's becoming intimate with what they're trying to accomplish, what are the things that they're having troubles with, what are their pains, and really trying to understand from all the different business units within that organization how everything is going to play together. And it, it's a complicated process, and I think it takes a while to really be able to do it effectively. I mean, I know that I wouldn't say that I started really hitting my true stride until maybe year two. So, you know, you have to be willing to, to gut it out that, that first year, year and a, and a half. And you celebrate the little wins. You know, you have to celebrate the little wins because those are the ones that are going to keep you going. And, and they, you know, they start to snowball. And that's when you can start to really, you know, frankly, get up the confidence to walk into a room and say, hey, I've been able to help other customers with this. Let me do the same for you. And once you start to get that, that's when you really start to develop that trust. And you start to earn the right to be in that room and sitting across the seat, across the table from that customer and say, listen, let's open up to me about what you're really trying to accomplish here. I think that that's one of the biggest things is, you know, people are very guarded and they don't want to give everything away. So when you can finally have a true conversation about what the true issue is, that's where everything starts. And that's where you can start to look at, okay, here's my assortment of products. Here's what I've seen work in the past. What's going to most specifically work for them in their business unit and their future goals? And that's when you start to hit that success. Because when you do that and they have success with it, they're saying, okay, now I have this problem. Help me out with this problem. You did great here. Help me out with this one. I hope everybody's taking notes. There's a lot of gold in there. Okay especially as we move here into the little sales tricks and hacks of what's made you successful, man, a lot of gold nuggets. I think it's funny how things work out, right? If you had been maybe placed in maybe not a 
a similar type of field or with a company that had one product. I think having to, you were forced to ask really open-ended questions and hone your discovery skills, it sounds like, to really identify like what people's pain points are. And guys, I don't care if you're selling cars, boats, houses, tech, sales is sales. And extracting the truth and extracting people's pain is an art. That is step one to the sales process of how can I add value to this person? Well, I don't even know that if I don't know what's bothering them. I love that you were able to take, and then the part two of that is that you were able to take a long view of, wow, I am not making, probably not making the kind of money that I want to make in year one. I'm not having the kind of sales success that I thought I was going to have in year one. I was crushing it in the beer industry. I wasn't, you know, it was comfortable to me and I didn't really probably have to try as hard. Now this is something new. What do you think enabled you to have that more longer term view? Because this is something I really see people struggle with is they, the delayed gratification, like they want to see results now. And they really self-sabotage themselves into quitting too early before they can really see the fruits of their labor. Yeah, I mean, the whole wanting the gratitude or the instant success, let's call it, I just never, I don't, I don't know if that truly exists. I think that it's one of those things where I was already of the mindset, this is going to be difficult. This is going to be tough. You know, I'm going to doubt myself a lot of times. But I think that one of the biggest things that, helped me get through was one, I enjoyed what I was doing. Like, I like being in front of people. I like having conversations. I like breaking down those barriers. And, and moreover than that, I like being the one that would be in the position to help them succeed with their goals. That was a fun thing. I, I got energized off that, even the small ones. You know, that really is what kept me going. And by no means was it an easy path. But it was those small wins and it was what I was doing that I really felt at home with that allowed me to get through those difficult times and keep pressing forward and keep building on those small wins that you know eventually turned into much larger ones. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. So why would somebody want to get into a sales job instead of just a regular, you know, salaried W2? Well, I mean, you know, for me. I had always excelled at being in front of people, right? And so I always enjoyed being in front of people. It was just something that I gravitated to. And, you know, like I said, I was, I was never the best student. And so I really didn't feel like being, you know, stuck in front of a computer, you know, looking through spreadsheets was really the path for me. And so the more I kind of looked into it, didn't matter what industry it was, whether it was in the restaurant industry where I started or, or transitioning into beer and had many different jobs throughout, throughout my beer career. And, and then obviously into tech, you know, doing various things. It's just what I really enjoyed. And I felt very at home doing it. And I would say that that's kind of, that was my, my why as to why I was, you know, gravitated more towards a sales role. I would say later on, is when I kind of realized that, you know, not being focused on just a straight salary, but focusing on what I could do with a commission-based role and how that could significantly accelerate my W-2 earnings, that's when I really, let's say, capitalized on it and, and really hold it, honed in on all of that stuff that I went through, all of those changes and all of those 
you know, learning experiences all set me up to be prepared for this. And that's frankly where, you know, I don't know if I could go back to just being on a salary role. I want that ability to leverage, you know, everything that I've learned, you know, to maximize my W-2 through a commission-based program. Yeah. So you're, number one, you're extroverted and you get energy from being around people and solving their problems in real time. That is not an easy thing to do. And then number two, you don't want a ceiling on how much you can earn. I think that's like the major draw for anyone in sales is you get out what you put in. And sure, you have good years and you have off years. But over time, if you're putting in that work, like you can control how much money you make versus just a regular salary position where you might get your three to 5% raise or no raise at all every year, you have way much more control. And I'm curious, I hear this a lot in interviews with people that maybe they have a, there's different types of pay structure, right? With commission and, and Mm -hmm. base salary. I find sometimes that people that want a higher base salary versus commissions, like, is it really a matter of them not believing in themselves as much or because just from the company's perspective, right? If they offer a lower base salary and higher commissions, that employee can usually earn a lot more because they usually give you a higher percentage of commissions. Whereas if they come up higher in the base and lower in the commissions, then you're capped a little bit more on what you can earn. So I wonder as a salesperson, do you have to have an undying belief in yourself and your abilities that you will succeed and you will make what you want to make? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting, you know, I think that it's an evolution, right? So like when I first got in tech, you know, not very confident, knew I wanted to do this and, you know, knew I was going to grit it out, but I was happy to have that base. Right. And I had a smaller commission package. And then as you evolve, as you develop that confidence, you do want that to flip around and you do want that to shift over more towards the the commission base or, or having a larger, you know, uh, portion of your total OTE focused on commission. Because then it's where you can really start to accelerate, you know, those W-2 earnings and really start to capitalize on all the experiences that you've gone through in order to really have the confidence to jump into that. But I mean, I think it's one of those things, it's an evolving process and that's kind of how it should, it should be because there's nothing wrong with having a base plus, you know, a smaller commission. It's just once you get that confidence and once you develop those skills, that allow you to capitalize on where you want it to shift. And you just put yourself in in a position where you want to do that. I think the other thing also is it's not always just about your confidence in yourself. It's also about the company you're working with and the the support you have there and the product. And, you know, that's that's all going to play into it as well. Yeah, 100%. I love what you said about it really is building the skills and outworking your self-doubt. And the combination and something you said earlier, stacking those small wins builds up that confidence. And then when you have the confidence in yourself, you know, like, hey, if there's a product, if the product's good enough, I can sell it, right? And that gives you more freedom to make good choices and to, I guess, really call your own shots because then you're, it's one thing to have the skills, but then when you have the skills and the confidence, people can feel that in a room. And with your conviction, if you believe in the product, they will believe in the product because of all those traits. But 
in your first year, I'm sure you didn't have a ton of that. So how does your first year, you know, you're struggling through it, learning something new. Your second year, you start to see some success. How do people overcome those feelings of doubt? Sheer effort. <laughs> it's, you know, listen, you're always going to get in situations that you're uncomfortable with, right? And, you know, they say, you know, get comfortable being uncomfortable. And it's 100% true. And I have found that, you know, with sheer effort and preparation, those two things are what can help you work through a lot of that self-doubt. And they have served me very well throughout my time in sales and as I've continued to grow my career in technology. And, you know, in those early days where you don't know a lot and you're still learning everything, putting in that effort and, you know, being inquisitive and wanting to learn more were absolutely massive. And being in the room, even though I didn't have the credibility or the confidence, being prepared is what helped me, you know, traverse a lot of those knowledge gaps, let's call it. And, you know, I just think that that's massive. Absolutely agree. Love that. And fast forwarding then, what happens after year two? How long before you go and seek the next opportunity? And, and what does that look like in terms of, are you seeking it out or other people coming after you now because you have a proven track record? Yeah, it was, you know, I'd say it was after year two that I really started to kind of get in my stride. You know, I spend my time at that bar down here in, in San Diego and I'd start to accumulate wins and I'd start to build my own accounts. And if things started to evolve from there where, you know, I may have been selling them one thing, but they were like, hey, now help me with this project or help me with this professional services engagement, which is, you know, a lot more involved. And you got to start leveraging a lot more resources at the organization to come in and, and start to craft those very customized solutions for customers. And that's when my business really started to snowball. It started to pick up. It's, you know, I was onboarding new customers at a faster rate. I was more comfortable getting on the phones and cold calling into new, you know, prospects that, you know, frankly, we hadn't spoken to before. But also, you know, I was also able to evolve a lot of these smaller customers or what had been small at the time for the business into much bigger, bigger customers for our company. And so then all that started to stack and it started to stack. And then obviously, as people leave the business, you get those opportunities to jump into uh, bigger accounts because you've got a proven track record. So they trust you to take on those, those bigger ones, which require you to you know, start that process almost all over again of learning how to deal with those enterprise level customers, which operate much differently than those small SMB customers. You know, it's, it's all this continual thing that all starts to snowball. And, you know, listen, you obviously have setbacks at every level of, of that, you know, even now, you know, I constantly have setbacks, but it's understanding and it's making sure that I look back and say, well, why didn't that work? Or why did I fail there? And taking away from it and building on that in order to make sure that the next time you don't make those same mistakes or you recognize when something is not a perfect fit and you don't just keep trying to press it You say, you know what? This, you know, we can't help you with, with what you're trying to solve for. And rather than trying to put a square peg in a, in a round hole, you say, I'm going to go spend my time on something else that'll, that'll be more fruitful for all of us, which is a tough thing to walk away from sometimes. Oh, 100%. And how do you approach, like, do you approach a sale? Well, I guess in what ways is approaching a sale, like with a, a small customer different from a big enterprise customer? 
You know, when you're working with smaller organizations, you know, there's typically a lot less layers of people that you need to work with or that you need to interact with both from the customer, but also within your organization and the resources. Because here's the thing, you know, I'm not a super technical person, so I'm relying on my teams that are around me. And I have some of the best teams in the entire industry that are surrounded, that are, that are working with me right now. And I'm incredibly fortunate for that. But it's really understanding which of those subject matter experts to bring in at what time and with which individuals that I find make all of the difference. Now, when you're working with small organizations, they're usually a lot flatter organizations. You're dealing with one or two people. Whereas when you're dealing with these five, 10,000 person organizations, you're dealing with multiple business units that have very competing priorities that sometimes are very siloed and you know, one hand either is not talking to the other or, you know, they've just got different priorities that they want to focus on that, you know, they don't feel interact well. And, you know, you have to manage each of those different groups. And then you also have to be able to communicate the value of your product across many different layers. You know, some might be technical, some might be not, some might be focused on, you know, far different priorities than what the actual business is trying to solve for. So I'm hearing a few things. Number one is you got to find out who the decision maker is or, and then yeah. the bigger the company is, sometimes there could be multiple, there could be smoke screens and getting in touch with that person and making that connection is probably as vital of a step as even the value proposition. It's just, am I talking to the right person? Cause if you're not, then nothing is going to get started. Is that accurate? Oh, a thousand percent. Yeah. A thousand percent. And you know, that's one of those things that you learn over time. You know, who's a, a coach and who's a champion. And I think that, you know, when you when you really start to get into that, these larger organizations, it's rarely just one person, right, who's making that decision. Now, they may be the ultimate decision maker, but they're taking in feedback from all of their different teams. And, and it's really important that you get to every single one of those teams to understand what is a win, like what is success to their team specifically. And how does my product or service, whatever it is, how does it align and, and make that team successful? And if you do that across all of those different groups, then I, the rest of it is just figuring out the financials or figuring out how to communicate that effectively to that, that next level up. And I think that's one of the, the core things that I've learned in, you know, as I've continued to grow from, you know, working for the bar to working for my, my current organization, where I'm dealing with much bigger accounts than I ever did then, is you have to be able to get wide within the organization. You have to be able to understand how everything plays and how all of these interact with each other, because ultimately they do. They all interact. And if you can provide value over here, here, and here, and here, then they're all going to say, hey, this is what we want, because this is going to solve my problems. And if they all do that, then it solves, you know, whoever the, the decision makers problems are, hopefully. What do you think makes a killer closer? What's the top skill set or thing that you think makes a great salesperson? You know, I'm sure that there's a lot of things that go into this, but I have found that, you know, being in the numbers is one of the most important components to being able to find a way forward. Now, I'm not trying to, to discredit, you know, some of the other core fundamentals like building trust, you know, but when you think about getting to that point, because listen, you may be able to 
you know, solve this business unit's technical problem. But if you can't find a way to make this work financially for the organization, you know, that might not matter, especially when you think about today's climate. You know, there are no deals that we are doing right now that don't have significant influence from the CFO. That's just the fact of the matter. And being able to structure deals that fit within not only the technical requirements of the customer, but the financial requirements of the customer and where they may be at today are absolutely core tenants to what uh, are going to make you successful in sales today, whatever the market is. And so I think that that's one of the one of the biggest things that I've learned, and I'm very fortunate to have a mentor that I do now who is you know a financial wizard when it comes to that stuff and understanding very quickly how to structure deals, but also how to present those in a very you know simplistic way without getting too much in inertia and details and still having that and understanding it, but being able to communicate effectively to those higher levels. I think is absolutely a core tenant to becoming a, a top closer. Yeah, man, that a lot of gold to unpack there. What you're referring to is a macro and the micro. And now you're at the level where you've done all the micro, which are the core sales fundamentals, right? It's extracting truth. It's building trust. It's mirroring. It's tonality. It's all the basic, the basic things. And now that you've mastered the fundamentals, you can take a step back and look at what is our macro environment in the economy right now? Well, when, you know, people are doing layoffs and budgets are getting cut, then yeah, everything is going to go through additional approvals, right? And nothing is now, whereas money was flowing, everybody's doing a bunch of deals. There's tons of cash flow at every company. You're not going to have as many checkpoints, right? Maybe someone else just has to do one sign off or whatever. Now in this environment, you're probably getting beat up on price every step of the way or every person that looks at it through a huge lens. And the awareness of you having mastered the micro where you can like get to that next level where now I'm doing all this stuff in my sleep, the micro, I'm doing the micro in my sleep, but the macro now I can take it to the next level because now I can talk about the numbers of why this makes sense for your organization, how much money this will save you or what kind of events this will prevent in the future. And gosh, you don't want those events to happen because with this and this, with some of my other customers that I've experienced with, they had this happen and oh my gosh, that cost a million, sometimes billions, right? And I love, I love that, that evolution as like you talked about before, where you're just adding another layer, another skill set where people walk into a room with Scott now and it's like, I got the basics covered and I know how this is going to make you more money and save you from a big, you know, negative event or publicity or whatever it is moving forward. It's all about, you know, throughout my whole career, it's all been about leveling up. It's all been about acquiring those new skills, honing the ones you have. And it was like you were saying, you know, it's the core tenets of what you're doing. You start to build that muscle memory around them. And once you do that, once you get really good at them, then that allows you to focus more on the next thing or the next you know, tier that I need to get to or the next skill that I need to acquire to better enable myself to help my customers. And I think that that's just one of those, one of those things. And you have to recognize that early on. It's not all gonna come at once and you can't boil the ocean and focus on 
too much too fast because then you'll just be surface level. And while that may, you know, get you past one or two things, if you're really going to do it, you've got to start to really hone in on it and really, you know, master some of those skills to the point where, you know, you can't get them wrong. You know, you know them so well that it's just that muscle memory. That is spot on. I can tell you guys from experience, I've done this and I've had salespeople before that start to get a little bit impatient. And I think some amount of impatience is, is actually good because it means you're a driver and you're looking for more and looking for better opportunities. I can tell you a hundred out of a hundred times, whenever we have maybe fast-tracked someone's training plan or removed uh, certain checkpoints or training or, hey, they need to do this kind of lead generation or whatever it is and fast-track them into the big leagues, they never are set up for success. And ultimately, they fail way harder than taking these like little micro failures along the way and really building up that foundation to then crush it at the next level. And time and time again, I've had to learn that the hard way where... We have done that for certain individuals. And then ultimately we look back and we're like, man, we did not set that person up for success. That's on us as a leadership team. We can't do that again. We can't rush this. I would say it's so true. And there are certain things you just cannot rush through. And, you know, you know, you see it a lot where, you know, people are coming into, you know, a sales role and totally natural. Everyone wants them to, you know, start to be able to produce. They need to be able to have that time to learn and to develop. And, you know, if you rush that too fast, just like you said, it puts people in a position that they're going to become unsuccessful. And that's one of those things that you just can't rush. Although we would all love to have it happen faster. It's just one of those things where that, that training is crucial. And that, that period where they're allowed to fail, right? Because, you know, you get into these sales roles and, you know, eventually it does become about, you know, are you producing or are you not? And you need to have that safe period where you can fail because you're going to learn from those failures. And that's going to set you up to be more successful moving forward. I remember in my early career with the company I'm with now, you know, we had a couple opportunities with some massive organizations. And I had, you know, this was early on in my career. I didn't know which way was up. And we, we dove into them. We dove into them and the amount that I learned, but it was, it was a safe place. My boss at the time, he was phenomenal about it. He goes, listen, you know, there's a lot, this is a long shot, but you're going to learn a ton on, on the way. So there's a benefit here, but you know, like, don't be surprised if this doesn't turn out how we want it to. Now we put everything into it and it didn't turn out how we wanted, but it gave me such a foundation for working with larger organizations which is ultimately where I've been able to steer my, my career and focus on, which has been phenomenal. But he gave me that safe space to learn and, you know, and fail, frankly. Yeah, sign of a good leader and a good manager. I can tell you guys the difference between having a good manager and a bad manager is everything. If you look at, you know, to use an NFL analogy, a lot of quarterbacks that get drafted in the first five picks fail because of bad ownership and bad coaching. They were never set up to succeed from the get-go. The, the players that were drafted later, and I'm a homer, so or I'm not a homer, but I'm a big Packers fan. And now you're seeing like with Jordan Love, what he's doing because he had three years to sit behind Aaron Rodgers and Aaron Rodgers had three years to sit behind Brett Favre. 
with zero expectations, zero pressure, and you're seeing the long view results of that. And it's just, it's just a shining example of like the quicker you need that dopamine hit and that immediate satisfaction, the more you're sabotaging yourself. And as a manager, this is one thing that actually drives me nuts that I want your opinion on. I see so many organizations that promote their top closer and top salesperson to sales manager. Why does that happen? Why do people do that? It's a completely different skill set. It is absolutely. I think that, you know, if I had to listen, there's obviously a lot of reasons I think that it does happen. One is because they, they make the assumption that just because you were great at closing deals that you could lead people and multiply yourself, you know, teach other people to do it, which obviously isn't the case in all scenarios or, or many of them. You know, other reasons could be they don't want to lose that person's tribal knowledge. You know, they think that they can still tap into that resource, but recognizing that if they don't move them up or don't, you know, promote them into a different position, that they're going to leave and they're going to go somewhere else. So I think also it gets to that point where you really truly have to evaluate, is this person going to get us to where we want? And, and if it's not, and, you know, then maybe promoting them and putting them in a position that isn't suited to them isn't going to help anyone, you know, that person or the organization. But yeah. I think that that's, that happens quite a bit though. Yeah, for sure. What does somebody do? I hear people talk about tech sales as this bright, shiny thing, because it's where all the money is supposedly. <laughs> now there's absolutely some truth in that because you're dealing with high margin businesses and software inherently has really high margins. How does somebody break through if they don't have a network, maybe they have a little bit of sales experience. Like what is step one for somebody to do to break into tech sales? Well, I think you talk about like, what do you do if you don't have a network? And it's, you know, I think one of the biggest things is start building one. And that requires a significant amount of effort because when you think about the things that have made a lot of people successful, it's who you surround yourself with is such a major component of that. And are you hanging around high performers or not? And in, I think a lot of, you know, cases, if you're hanging around high performers, it brings you up. It, it raises the level of what you want to strive to. It's just one of those inherent things. And so, you know, if you don't have a network around that, then you got to find out, you know, what are the events that I could go to to start to build that network? What are some of the classes that I could take where I might be running into those people at the local college or, or things of that nature? And I think you just have to start to really put in the effort to understand, you know, what does that network for that industry look like? You know, whether it be tech or anything, you know, you've got to start somewhere to build that up because frankly, you already said it, there's, you know, every job out there is getting a thousand applicants. All right. And, and you've got to find a way to stand out. If you've got no experience, then you have to, you have to find a way to get in front of the right people. And ultimately that's going to be building a network, you know, however you need to do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And skills are a big part of that too. What are some of your favorite either sales hacks, tricks, tips, anything that you found that's helped, I guess, propel your biggest growth moments? I would say, and I got this one from one of the guys that hired me at the company I'm at now, and he spoke often about violence of action. And I tell this to when new hires come on board, you know, they reach out and say, can I put 15 minutes, 30 minutes on your calendar? Absolutely. You know, my calendar is open. And that is what I preach most because 
they're in that mode where they're trying to learn and they're trying to get stuff, you know, trying to figure, drink through the fire hose, as they say, and figure out their direction, how they're going to focus their days. And I always say, you know, have violence of action. You know, if there is something that you need that is coming up as, yeah, I need to get that done, just go do it. And don't wait. If there's a meeting that needs to be set up, do it right on that call with the customer or the prospect. If there's something to send out, don't say I'll send it out later on tonight. Just go do it. And I have found that to be one of the, what I believe is one of my core tenants uh, that's made me successful and allowed me to capitalize, you know, a lot more opportunity than my competition because I've taken that immediate action and just haven't let things sit. I think also when you think of the, the, the world we're in, you know, we're, we're selling on quarters, right? And so if you wait to do X, Y, and Z or set this meeting up, you've then lost three days. And you're not top of the pile anymore. So that's going to take another two days for that person to dig that out and respond to you and move forward with it. Now you've lost five days. And when you're thinking about things from a quarter perspective, if that happens a bunch, you may have just lost 15 days or 20 days in a sales cycle. That's massive. And at the end of the day, if you're forecasting something, you want to be able to bring it in on time as expected. And that's what management expects. When you can start to do that, that's when they start to truly trust in your abilities to execute at the highest of levels. And, and then you start getting the opportunities and, you know, accounts get put in, in your name because they know that that's a guy who is going to get it done. That is fantastic. Absolutely. We call it massive action. It's the same exact thing. What would you say to people that are maybe afraid to communicate too much? I don't want to bother them. I just, I already tried to follow up the other day. You know, I don't want to seem needy. Well, I think you always seem needy depending on how you approach them, right? You know, it depends on what you say and how you say it. And I've started to really look into the way in which I'm crafting messages and how I'm sending things across and the mediums that I'm using. And I think that has everything to do with it. And I think also making sure that, you know, when you are reaching out, you know, you're maintaining your level within that relationship. Because if somebody views you as of lesser importance, they're not going to respond. This really comes down to the making sure that you're maintaining that, that level of stature within the organization or with the people that you're trying to work with. But I think it also really has a major impact on, you know, one, how they're going to view you and whether or not they're going to respond, but also in your understanding of, is this worth the, the time? You need to start to understand, and it just takes experience. It's really difficult to do right out of the gate. But you start to say, you know, is my time worth being spent here? If you put all of those things together and have the right tonality, the right message, and you're still not getting the responses, then it's okay to move on. It's okay to say, I'm going to put this one on the back burner. I'm going to go focus my time somewhere else. Because at the end of the day, you know, you only have so much time and in your quarter and your year, you're going to run out of it. And so you need to be spending your time where you can maximize the most, you know, amount of value. Yes. Volume in your leads is the great equalizer, right? Each lead that you have or account that you're servicing, the magnitude of that doesn't feel near as bad if you have a hundred others to choose from and spend time on. So lead generation is really important there in your business. What sales resources do you like either a book a podcast social media content 
I have been getting really into LinkedIn lately. I would say over the past six to 12 months, things have been incredibly busy where I'm at right now. So being able to get those little, you know, those little snippets and then go down the rabbit hole, you know, later at night when I'm sitting on the couch, I think has been phenomenal. And I've picked up some of those little tips and tricks. And it's been things that I'm starting to incorporate into my everyday operation. And, you know, I've seen some work, some don't, but overall, I've seen it be incredibly beneficial. And once again, also, when you're interacting on LinkedIn, I find that you're expanding your network, which is something that you should always be focused on is continuing to build your network. And there's a lot of, you know, very intelligent people out there, very successful people out there who are very open about what's made them successful. And you can learn a lot. And so I found it, you know, LinkedIn's to be great because it's very digestible, very quick. And, you know, there's just a lot of great stuff out there. Yeah, guys, LinkedIn is an incredibly underrated social media platform. It doesn't get near the, maybe just because it's in through a professional lens, but man, there is so much opportunity there to start your network. Like Scott's saying, you don't even have to be in person anymore. And in-person matters, absolutely. But you don't have to be in person to start building relationships with people. And the reality is in the world we live in today, it's not about being the best. It's about being the best known. And I'm not saying you don't, shouldn't be the best. You should be, you should strive to be the best, of course, but you can leverage a platform like LinkedIn to start building your network, to comment on other people's posts, to give people positive words of encouragement. People remember that people absolutely remember that. Hey, you know, Scott congratulated me on that promotion or whatever it is, right? People store those positive memory banks in the back of their mind. And hey, when Scott's looking for a position or somebody else is looking for a position, that's what comes to mind. Like people that have those those banks of positivity that have given them over social media, it's a really powerful tool and the scalability of it. You know, you go out and meet one person for coffee or you make a post on LinkedIn or you comment on a post and hundreds or thousands of people see it. So I love that answer and I can't endorse that enough just because I think a lot of people are hesitant to talk about themselves or to make posts because it's a little bit uncomfortable. But again, getting uncomfortable is really what gets you to live the life that you want. Yeah, especially when you're starting out, you really don't have a choice. If you're going to be successful, you got to get uncomfortable or get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. So going into a sales organization, I hear this all the time. It's luck, which accounts you get. And sometimes people walk into some really good accounts and that's what oftentimes defines somebody's success in sales is which accounts they get. What do you think about that? You know, when I think about, you know, is it, is it luck? Do I think that there's in certain situations, you know, luck can play a part in it? Sure. I mean, listen, if you happen to have an account put in your name and suddenly something happens like a, a driving event that, you know, your product or service solves and you're in the right place at the right time. Absolutely. You know, there are those scenarios, but what I find is if you take the accounts you have and you truly understand what that customer is trying to solve for. Now, obviously, you know, you have to have a product or service that's going to align to what that is. But I think if you, if you truly focus on what is going to make them successful, right, and you start to build that up, you know, you can have those small wins and then people take notice. 
And then it's not that you got lucky having that account put in your name. Somebody looked and said, I can trust that person to do the right thing with this account. So I'm going to give it to them. And then it's not about luck. It's about earning the right and earning the ability to execute on those that is going to make all the difference moving forward into what's going to get put into your name or what you're going to get the opportunity to compete for. You know, because at the end of the day, there are only so many accounts to go around, you know, whatever industry you're in and being able to make the case of why you should be the one to get that one is going to be, you know, paramount to everything. And that's going to be your ability to communicate your skill set and your track record and your ability to deliver for the organization. I'll tell you one thing on that note that I see can be a struggle for people in sales. Typically, when you start in sales, it's normally like a higher volume and a lower price sale or a lower priced opportunity. And then as you get the track record, you get on bigger accounts, larger opportunity accounts. The cash conversion cycle on those deals, the seven figure deals, and I know you know all about this, but the seven figure deals can take multiple years to work out. Whereas, hey, if you're selling cars, like somebody walks on the lot, you make the sale, it's same day. I see some people struggle with just the sales cycle of bigger accounts when they're used to like the immediate feeling and the immediate reward of getting that, that short sale versus the bigger accounts that take a really long time. And when you're hunting whales, it can be a big swing of emotion. How do you handle you know, closing these seven figure accounts and chasing these whales when they might take years to close or not close at all. Yeah, I mean, you talked about it earlier on delayed gratification and you have to be willing to see the bigger picture and what you're, you're ultimately doing. And this goes even more to my point of, you need to spend your time focused on the right things because these deals take so much longer to materialize and so much longer to develop. You know, you have to be very open and honest with yourself saying, do I see the time when this comes to fruition? And if you get to the point where X, Y, and Z aren't lining up, you need to be willing to walk away from it. But I think it's all about seeing the bigger picture and why you're doing this. And, you know, it's really tough until you hit that first one. And then when you do hit that first big, big one, you go, oh, this is, this is why. I'm willing to wait it out because the reward at the end is always much larger. I think the other thing is you talk about these, these larger deals, they're more complex. And I found for me personally, I love that. I love getting into the minutia of it and really having to craft all the different components that are going to go into making that customer successful, making their individual business units successful and really all of the different resources that need to be honed for it. Like that's where I get excited. So for me, after having had those first couple successes, now I'm getting to do it at a much bigger level and really doing the thing that I love and getting obviously that great satisfaction when you do get to close the deal. It's no wonder you're successful. I mean, your mindset, it's so clear how to see how you differentiate yourself from other salespeople and that you're not just interested in making the sale. You genuinely want the customer to succeed. And in fact, it brings you energy to think about all the little things that you can tinker to bring even more value post sale. How does somebody get that mindset? I mean, that is, that's next level stuff. 
Well, if you focus on making your customers successful, because here's the thing, after the sale, I don't just walk away. It's still my customer, all right? And so if I focus on making them successful, everything downstream gets easier. It does. If you focus on what is, what is best for them and how can I best support their goals and initiatives, everything downstream gets so much easier. If you go in there and you're just trying to make the sale, you'll say whatever it takes to make the sale. And then, you know, then you've got to deal with all that when it doesn't come to fruition. So I've found that if I focus on my customer's success, whatever that happens to be, focus on helping them achieve their goals or their initiatives, everything else falls into place and everything else becomes so much easier. And I think that's the mindset that I like to take whenever I walk into a situation is, okay, how can I make them successful? Whether it be personally, professionally, for the organization, however it is, you know, that is my ultimate focus. That's the true truth that, that I'm trying to get to because that's going to allow me to then say, okay, I do have a product or a service that can help you get there. And if I don't, that's when I have to say like, hey, we're just not a good fit. You know, we're, we're not going to be able to help you with this and just, you know, go find somewhere else to go. So here's something I see often in tech sales because the industry and the product first to market is so essential. And then the products themselves are evolving by the year, sometimes even by the month. And the pressure is on product and engineering to keep evolving the product so it continuously adds value to the customer and there's more verticals or more industries that there's a use case for. However, the reality is sometimes you have to sell something that might not be done or might not be totally functional. Maybe it's like 70 or 80% of what it's supposed to be. How do you navigate those conversations? Because it's a really complicated thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's being, you know, upfront and saying, hey, listen, you know, because you got to be careful, you know, selling on the roadmap, as they call it. Yeah. It's a dangerous game because priorities change. And everyone kind of knows that, but I think it's my responsibility to say, hey, here's what you're asking. Here, here's what we have now. Here's what we have today. And be very open and honest about it. And then here is where we're planning to go with this product. Now, I don't like talking about any type of roadmap items that are six months or greater, unless I know that it is a major initiative for the organization. It's a fully funded project. And it's not something where, you know, we're going to veer from that. I like to focus on three to six months. Here's what we're gonna be delivering. And here is the, the last 20% or the last 10% or what have you. But it's being open and honest. Everyone knows that there's no one product that is 100% perfect going to meet their needs. It doesn't exist, right? And so the fact that everyone knows that, they just want you to be open and honest with them and not tell them, yeah, we'll have that to you next month, which happens to be the month after the deal is gonna close. It's saying, hey, here's what we're working on. And listen, priorities do change. And you have to go back to the customer and say, hey, listen, priorities have changed. That, that's a gap now. And we need to figure out how we're going to navigate around that. Or what can we do um, as a stopgap to fix that until it does come back to being a priority? And listen, at the end of the day, I'm 100% responsible for all aspects of it. Doesn't matter what a resource I bring into it has to say. You know, I'm responsible, you know, buck stops with me onto that relationship with the customer. And once again, I go back to 
you know, how can I make them successful? But also downstream, I'm not going anywhere. So I'm going to have to make good on all those promises that I made, which is why if I'm open and I'm transparent and I'm frankly kind of blunt about where we're at and where we're trying to go and some of the areas where they could get in the way of that, then at least I've informed them. And it's up to them to make an informed decision back is, can I live with what they have today? And am I, I'm buying it for that. And if they come to fruition and if they finish that, that last 20%, great. That's just a bonus for me. Absolutely nailed it completely. So how do you blend this violence of action with, you know, a wife and a son and all the family priorities and, and everything else? I don't know. I'm still figuring that one out. It's one of those things that, you know, it's, I, I've got a very supportive wife. I'm incredibly lucky and, you know, an awesome kid, but, you know, I, I always, you know, want to be there and I can't always be there. Right. And so it's, you have to find some sort of a balance. And, you know, for me, you know, where I'm in Q4 right now and, and there's a lot going on, you know, I have to make sure that that there are certain non-negotiable times that I'm spending with the family. One thing for me is, you know, Saturday mornings, you know, my son and I will, will get in the car and sometimes we'll bring the dog and we're going to go get our donuts and coffee and we're going to go play on the beach or we're going to go, you know, take a walk in the park or we're going to go drive the RC car around, which he's really into right now. And like, that's non-negotiable, no matter what's going on with, you know, house renovations or whatever is going on you know, that's going to happen. I need to have that quality time. And it's just, those things are so difficult to navigate. Sometimes I do it really well. And sometimes I don't do it really well. And it's recognizing we're all human and, and trying to figure out what that balance is. Yeah. I, th I think that that's a very fair and realistic and honest answer. That's, it's not really a one size fits all thing, but you use the words that you use there of non-negotiable time is really important because the minute you start saying to yourself or your spouse or your kids that you're going to do something and then you don't, what does that yeah. do? Right? You're really eroding the confidence that they have that, hey, this relationship or this, this feeling and this moment is important to them or important to you. And you can't do that. Everything that you want to accomplish in your sales career, in your life, you know, the things that money can provide you and financial freedom and all those fun things without a stable foundation or family life at home, it is not possible or yeah, it is possible for short spurts and then it'll all come crumbling down. Yeah. I mean, and that comes really back to like, what's your why? Like, that's why your why is so important in all this. And, you know, it's fun to get to be successful, but that's not my why. My why is my family. My why is, you know, being able to provide for them and, you know, go do experiences with them and, and get to a point where I can spend time with them doing, you know, whatever it happens to be like, that's my why. And that's always been something that I've focused on. And, you know, that's why I work so hard and, and put in those late nights is because that is going to get us to where I can ultimately just, you know, be with my family and, and provide for them all, all the things that we want to do. Love it. So Scott, I got one final question for you. What does real freedom mean to you? You know, I think real freedom for me means being comfortable enough in where I'm at in life to make more changes. 
you know, making changes has proven to be a phenomenal thing uh, throughout my life. And for me, freedom is being able to take that next leap and know that I'm secure in my family and my network and, you know, what resources I need to be able to make that next jump. And that's real freedom for me. Fantastic answer. That is, that is spot on. So Scott, for people that want to reach out to you, I know you mentioned LinkedIn earlier. What's the best way, whether it's somebody that's, you know, getting started in their career or somebody looking to network with you, how do they find you? Yeah, LinkedIn's the best. Hit me up on LinkedIn, send me a message. I had so many people help me throughout my career that I definitely believe in paying it forward. And so, you know, I'm happy to have a discussion and, and help however I can. All right, everybody. This has been the Real Freedom Podcast with guest Scott Apone. See you on the next one. Peace.